We are finishing this morning our series in the book of Deuteronomy, so I invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you have a Bible, or it will be projected uh, on the wall or on your screen. I'm going to read the whole chapter. These are really uh, the last words of Moses' sermon to the people of Israel. Then the next couple chapters tell about Moses' death and have a couple of songs or poems or blessings of Moses. We just don't have time to cover that, so we're not going to. This is basically the the conclusion of uh, Moses' sermon. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, And obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And I'll just comment here that you remember we've said that this book was likely put together or written largely in about the the 6th century before Christ as Israel was getting ready to enter Canaan after the exile. But the story is about Israel on the Jordan going into Canaan for the first time. And you see that tension here. It's as if there's they're presently going into Jordan, but they've had already this exile behind him. I don't know if you can pick that up in the text. Verse 4. If your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. There's always something going on when at 9.30 on an evening, particularly on a Sunday evening, and you're looking at your Twitter feed, which you probably shouldn't be doing at 9.30 on Sunday evening, and there's a one-word tweet that comes up, and the one word is whelp, which in urban dictionary language, there's a lot of meanings to the word, but it basically means when you don't know what to say next. Last Sunday night, about 9.30, the word whelp appeared on my uh, Twitter feed. So I went immediately to one of my news feeds, and what had just happened, Will Smith had just slapped Chris Rock. And I'm sure you're aware that that's been a huge uh, topic of discussion throughout this last week. Maybe it's fading away now. It's brought lots of confusion and questioning. How do we treat each other? How do we respond to real or perceived bullying or injustice? What is violence? Are words violent? Violence. Is the defense of one's partner after a slur defensible? And if so, how should you do that? What role does race, status, wealth, or stardom play? What if it's not just one incident, but generations of injustice? Perhaps the reaction of our society that we talked about it for six days is worse than what actually happened. These aren't easy things to figure out. They all touch on what we call ethics. How do we live with one another? How do we behave? How do we deal with the wrongs that we do? Or the wrongs that are done to us? How do we care for the weak and for the marginalized? How do we care for those who are ill? As we've been through Deuteronomy, we have read a number of commandments. And Moses, in this closing section of Deuteronomy, basically repeats himself and says, These are the commandments that I have told you. I want you to keep them. I want you to keep all of God's commandments, and if you obey them, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering into to possess it. And we have read, especially over the last three weeks, some very specific commands. Every seven years, Israel was to forgive those who owed them a debt. Each Israelite was to forgive a debtor. You're to open your hand wide to the poor, to the brother, to the needy. If you are a soldier who just got engaged or built a house or planted a vineyard or is afraid, you can go home. You don't have to go to battle. And when you go to battle, for certain cities, offer terms of peace, and for other cities, destroy them utterly. Give your tithe to the orphan 
widow, and poor. It sounds very simple. It sounds very clear. It should be doable. But it isn't that simple. And it isn't that clear. And it isn't that doable. One reason we know that is because there's a lot of question about whether Israel itself actually kept many of these commands. A lot of them we just don't know if they really ever did. And then, of course, when you come to Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, you heard what it was said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but I say to you, And the whole story of the New Testament, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus and followers of Jesus, as well as the early church, revolved around the question, how do we live under, gent- under Roman occupation? And how do we integrate the Gentiles who are not Jews into our Jewish community? And so there are all these questions around marriage. What is marriage? How do we do it? Should we do it? There's all these questions around slavery. What, what should we do with this thing about slavery? There's all these questions around meat offered to idols. What should we do? Should we eat? Should we not eat? Under which circumstances? In whose house? Things are not so cut and dried. They never are in life. And we have this picture of the commandments and the laws as being fairly simple. But in addition to that, this idea that it is our responsibility to keep the law 100%. Most of us, when we think of the word perfect, especially as it appears in the in the New Testament, we think, okay, I've kept the law 100%. The law is said to do this, and I do it. The law is said to not do that, and I don't do that. I don't know how many of you uh, play Wordle. I'm a big Wordle fan. I'm a, I'm a word guy, so Wordle just, just gets me, and I usually am doing Wordle while I'm eating my breakfast in the morning. For those of you who don't know, Wordle is a puzzle that was developed, if I'm not mistaken, by an Englishman uh, for his wife. It's basically a, a computer a system. I don't know exactly the correct term for it. But basically, it, it gives you six opportunities to guess a word. And uh, so when you put in your first word, it'll show you the gray, the gray letters are one, letters that aren't in the word. The, the yellow letters are letters that are in the word but in the wrong place. And then the green letters are let, letters that are in the word and in the right place. And you have six opportunities to get the right word. And I won't tell you how long my streak is. Um, but, but imagine, I mean, obviously, you would, you would want to get um, the right word on the first try. That would be like 100%. That would be like perfect. Every day, you open Wordle, you guess your first word, and it's correct. But that's not what Wordle is about. Number one, it it can't happen. And number two, for me, it wouldn't be any fun. Why in the world would I do that? That's why on Twitter, particularly, everybody's very careful not to mention the word. So everybody, you can put up on Twitter or Facebook how you did, 
without the letters. So, because you don't want to give it away. Because it's not the object of the game to get 100% perfection every time. The object of the game is to have fun and play the game and enjoy yourself. And play with the letters and play with the words. And interact not only with the game itself, but I don't, maybe it's waning a little bit now, but in the beginning, everybody was so tired of all the COVID and all the war and everything else that this was the thing. Hey, this gave me warm fuzzies. And it's not about the warm fuzzies, but there's, there's, there, there's much more going on here than, than my striving to get the word on the first one. And if I don't, I'm angry with myself or upset. And I think that's sometimes how we approach the law, right? I've got to get it right. And if I don't, number one, God's mad at me. And number two, I'm mad at myself. When things are much more complex than that, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about interaction. We're talking about community. We're talking about searching together for ways to live together so that no one is hurt or marginalized or treated unjustly or outside the group, so that everyone has the chance to thrive and to prosper. And that context, your context, determines what that might look like. And that's why you see throughout all of scriptures, all these developments in how people looked at and thought about the law. And I ran across another example of of the struggle that we have in ethics. Um, Actually, it wasn't this week. It was the week before. In the Washington Post of March 17, 2022, there was an editorial called... um, um, Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. And it was written by Christina Emba, who's a journalist and who just put out a book in March called Rethinking Sex. And listen very carefully to what she says. And this is Washington Post of last week. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good And the more of it we have, the better. In this landscape, there is only one rule, and you will recognize this. Get consent from your partner beforehand. But the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. Today, as we make our way back into the world post-COVID, we need a new ethic because consent is not enough. Over the past decades, our society has come to believe that consent as a legal standard and a moral requirement could somehow make our most unruly activity more manageable. But it was never going to be that easy. Making the standard of consent making the standard of consent our sole criterion for good sex punts on the question of how to conduct a relationship that affirms our fundamental personhood and human dignity. That's the problem with consent. It leaves so much out. Non-consexual sex is always wrong, full stop. 
But that doesn't mean that consensual sense, con consensual sex, is always right. Even sex that is agreed to can be harmful to an individual, their partner, or to society at large. What would a be better ethic look like? I asked many of these people what a better sexual world might look like. Listening, I heard. Care, they said. Mutual responsibility, some suggested. Or, as one woman plaintively put it, can we not just love another, each other for a single day? That question points to what looks like a good answer. The word love tends to conjure ideas of flowers, chocolate, declarations of undying devotion. The word love tends to conjure ideas of flowers, chocolate, declarations of undying dying devotion. But the term has a longer, more helpful history. And now in the Washington Post of March 17, 2022, Thomas Aquinas is quoted. I knew you'd like that. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher and theologian, defined love as, quote, willing the good of the other. He borrowed that definition from Aristotle, who talked about love as an intention to bear goodwill toward another for the sake of that person and not oneself. There are many situations in which a partner might consent to sex affirmatively even enthusiastically, but in which sex would still be ethically wrong. In general, willing the good of the other is most often realized in restraint, in inaction rather than action. This involves a certain level of maturity and self-knowledge on all our parts and understanding that if we aren't able to manage this level of consideration in the moment or more broadly, we probably shouldn't be having sex. And yes, it might lead to less casual sex, not more. It's a much higher standard than consent, but consent was always the floor. It never should have been the ceiling. So this simple rule that our society and this correct rule that our society has developed over the last couple of decades and especially in the last years of the Me Too movement is you need to have consent and not just a no but a yes. But even without, within that there's all these complexities. And it's much more than just getting the first word, word right. Or getting the word right the first time. It's this whole complexity of things that becomes very, very difficult to figure out and to understand. What does it mean to will the good of the other? How are we to live, behave, conduct ourselves in the world in which we find ourselves? And then we find out that this simple rule, if you've planted a vineyard, go home. Offer terms of peace. Tithe to the poor. Don't look with lust. Don't eat the meat offered to idols. Or do eat the meat offered to idols. Or slap him on the Oscar stage, or don't. Or give your consent, or withhold it. But why? 
And what does it mean? It just isn't that easy. And Moses does go deeper than the law. He says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The word is very near you. And it's this Hebrew word, dabar. And I don't think I've mentioned this too much here from the pulpit, but over the last years, especially in the New Testament, when I read the word word, unless it says someone spoke a word, then I know what that means. But when it talks about the word of the Lord, or uses the word in that general kind of a sense, I translate that in my head with the word logos, or the word Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the logos, And the Word, Logos, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Logos, Jesus, was God. Now, I realize that it's more complicated than that. The Hebrew word, Dabar, has different meanings. And there are two Greek words for word, Rhema and Logos, that are used. So you have to be a little careful how you do that. I I realize all of that. But I'm wondering... If in Deuteronomy already, so many years before Jesus, Moses is saying, or God is saying through Moses, this word, and we tend to think of the book, but I wonder. Certainly it's this, but I wonder if there's something deeper going on. And if that word isn't just a little hint and just a little foretaste. And then I think to myself, sometimes you have crazy solutions and sometimes your solutions don't really match with what anyone else is saying. And sometimes you better be very careful. And then I stumble across Romans 10. Romans 10, the Apostle Paul said this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's he's totally immersed in Deuteronomy. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? And then he quotes Deuteronomy 30, what I just quoted, and says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I don't think I'm the only crazy person. The Apostle Paul looks back at this passage in Deuteronomy 
And here's Moses saying, the word is near you in your mouth and heart. And he said, oh, wait a minute. That's Jesus. This Jesus who came and who gave himself and who is with his people and walking with them through every complexity of life. Life a thousand years B.C., life 600 B.C., life in 30 A.D., life in 70 A.D., life in 1517 A.D., and life in 2022. Jesus is with us. And Jesus walks with us. But it gets even deeper than that. I want to look again at Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20. We're going to put it on the wall. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. So Moses is laying a choice before the people. Blessing, curse, life, death. Choose life. Otherwise, death will happen. Choose blessing. Otherwise, curse will happen. And again, we tend to think, okay, what are the rules? And how do I obey them? What is consent? What does it mean that I can go home from the battle because I planted a vineyard? And we're trying to get that wordle puzzle right on the first first word. But look what Moses says next. For he is your life and length of days. A personal pronoun. Not it. Or not that. Or not the law. But a personal pronoun. He. The person of God is your life. Not that you keep the law so that you get the passing grade. No. He is your life. When that word comes near to you and enters your life and enters your heart and enters our lives and enters our hearts and impacts how we live with one another and with the creation. In relationship with him is life and length of days. Regardless of circumstances. I believe that most of us have picked up, if not been explicitly taught, a form of what's called nowadays the prosperity gospel. That is, if I get the wordle quiz right on the first word every time, I will be blessed. And if I don't get it 100%, I will be cursed. If I believe the right thing, I will get to heaven. And if I don't believe the right thing, I won't get to heaven. If I obey the law, my life will go well. And if I don't obey the law, my life will go poorly. 
And we have centered our faith around this transaction. And so we're either deathly afraid that I can't get that word word right on the first try. Or we're unsufferably proud on the day that we did. And, at the, and I, I, I find this absolutely stunning. At the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of all these laws, Moses like blows them up. He says, isn't that what it's about? You are not going to find life in keeping these laws. You are going to find life and length of days in Him. In Jesus, going now to the New Testament, following Paul. This is an incarnation gospel. This is not the the standard that I need to follow, the standard I need to meet. No, this is an incarnation gospel. Jesus coming close and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not as a weapon, not as a theological proof that I have it right and the rest have it wrong, but as a statement of communion, a statement of fellowship, a statement of walking together with. And I think this is so important because I think that a lot of our frustration with life in crisis, and we are living life in crisis right now, is because we think, God, I've, but I've, I've, I've done my best to do what I should do, and I've done my best to believe what I should believe, and look, everything's falling apart. And God says, that's not the point. The point is, that I am with you. Whether the blessing comes or whether the curse comes, whether you get killed in battle or whether you don't, whatever your life circumstances, it's not about as long as I straighten up and fly right, then my circumstances will work. That certainly is true on a superficial level. If you jump off the top of the building, bad things will happen. Absolutely. But underneath that is the blowing up of this prosperity gospel of if I do this, then this. And if I don't do this, then that. And Moses says, and Jesus says, and Paul says, He is your life, and your length of days. We face the crisis of our day not with the perspective, if I'm good, things will turn out okay. But Jesus is with me, whatever happens. And that is enough. And Jesus is the one who, as Philippians 2 says, emptied himself, became a servant, and served to the point of death the other person, the community, the world. And we follow him in that emptying of ourself to seek the good of the other. 
So the whole point of, of Deuteronomy is not you will live if you figure out what these rules are, if you study the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and the Latin, figure out what it is and do it. Mm -mm. The whole point of Deuteronomy when it says that you may live is in Him is your life and length of days. And I want to encourage you today to to as especially as we go into this holy uh, Palm Sunday and the Holy Week, as you struggle with the crises in which you find yourself, whether they're personal crises or the crises of our community, our society, or our world, is the heart of your faith, is the foundation of your faith, I'm, I'm with you, Jesus, you're with me, and there lies my life, not in my circumstances. And that's a really hard thing to grasp because we have not been taught that very well. And it's not natural to us. But it will be a hard thing to do. <laughs> but I encourage you to do it. Because knowing that Jesus is with you and experiencing His presence in whatever way you do that is really the source of life and length of days. And in a sentence... That's what I think the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Amen.